Welcome to the second webinar of our series on global women in clean tech and advanced nuclear energy. I'm Chris Salako from Coalition Conservation, or C4C. I'll be moderating today's panel. As countries around the globe intensify their efforts to transition towards clean energy, we know it's crucial to foster a meaningful dialogue, to facilitate the exchange of knowledge, encourage discussions, so we can broaden our perspectives and explore all technologies and all solutions to achieve carbon neutrality faster. And today, we're very privileged to have to be connecting with female experts in clean energy from the United States and from Australia. In this session, we'll learn more about advanced nuclear technology focusing on small modular reactors or SMRs. We'll explore their applications, operations, safety considerations, but we'll also discuss economics of nuclear compared to other lower carbon options, how nuclear energy can support the integration of renewable energy sources in the grid, and how countries are deploying SMRs, and perhaps even how could be what could be the next steps here in Australia. So I'm delighted to welcome our panelists today, Dr. Rita Baronwall. She's the Senior Vice President of Energy Systems, AP300 SMR for Westinghouse. She's calling from Japan today. Dr. Jennifer Gordon, Director of the Nuclear Energy Policy Initiative at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, calling from DC. Lenka Kohler, co-founder of Cleantech Strategy Consulting and the technical advisory firm called Helixus, calling from Australia. And Jennifer Yu from the Nuclear Energy Institute in Washington, D.C. Now, Jennifer is replacing Maria Kosnick, who could not attend at the last, because she had a last minute family obligation to attend to. So Jennifer, thank you for being here. Jennifer is Vice President of Technical and Regulatory Services at the NEI. Each panelist will say a few words first about their current role and why they engaged in the nuclear space. And then we'll have this interactive conversation going on. So I'll be asking questions from the audience as well. So if you're here, please type your questions in the Q&A feature. So let me start with you, Rita, who I had the privilege of meeting during my visit to Westinghouse this year in Pennsylvania. Tell us a bit about what inspired you to support nuclear energy and what's your current role? Because it's changed since I met you last time. Sure, so thank you for organizing this. It's wonderful to be with my friends and colleagues on this panel, good to see everyone again. So very interestingly, what opened my eyes to nuclear energy was years ago, Jennifer Yule and I were in college together and we were sitting on her, her porch, her steps of her apartment. And she was talking about why she was pursuing a degree in nuclear engineering. And in that instance, she convinced me about the benefits of this wonderful energy source. So I went on to get my degrees in materials engineering, but my first job out of graduate school was developing new nuclear fuel for the US Navy's aircraft carriers and submarines. And I had stayed in this industry for over 25 years because of the clean energy benefits and the power that it can provide to communities around the world. Thank you to Dr. Yol for that tiny conversation. And I think that's what's really important in, in the work that we do because those little conversations can make life-changing impacts. So today I am the SVP for Energy Systems, as you mentioned at Westinghouse. We have launched our small modular reactor and we have several different reactors in our portfolio, including our Evinci reactor, which is a micro reactor, all the way up in size to our AP1000, which is our gigawatt size reactor. I have traditionally worked in research and development applications for nuclear power, but it's really wonderful and very fulfilling to be in this role now to be able to launch a new product that actually enhances and incorporates all of the developments that Westinghouse engineers and the entire Westinghouse team have developed today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Rita. Maybe, Jennifer, you can go next, since Rita mentioned you as the big <laughs> supporter of her. <laughs> I remember many conversations with Rita in undergraduate days, and I'm not sure I recall that one, but I'll take your word for it, Rita. <laughs> but I'm very glad that Rita and all of the ladies we have with us here today are interested in nuclear power. I started 
my path in undergraduate thinking I was going to major in physics because I liked math and science and I liked to understand how things worked. And then I found out that there was a nuclear engineering program at a school. So I investigated that a bit and fell in love. And so I guess I've been in the nuclear industry really since I started when I graduated undergrad in 91. And then that's making me sound very old. I did go back to school for a doctorate and then in 96, but I've been nuclear the entire time. Never once have I regretted it. Nuclear is just so important. In the United States, nuclear provides almost 50% of the carbon-free electricity on the grid. And it is really the workhorse of the grid because it's very reliable. We have 92, soon to be 93 commercially operating plants. And our average capacity factor, which means how long the plants are staying online producing 100% of power, is over 90% and has been for the past two decades. So we're the workhorse of the electricity grid and we pair beautifully with renewables. I know Australia has a lot of interest in, in more renewables, but you can always have to have baseload power. So at the Nuclear Energy Institute where I work, we're the trade organization for the nuclear power industry in the United States, although we also have members from over 13 different countries. And what we do is we work with the federal government to try to make the regulatory process as efficient as it can be while ensuring that safety, of course, is maintained. And then also to get the word out to the media, to the public about the important role that nuclear power plays, and then also work with Congress and with the administration for very supportive policies for nuclear power. And as I've said, I have never regretted being involved in this industry. And it is such an exciting time to be working with all of you fine ladies here today, and hopefully more people getting involved in the nuclear industry after this webinar. Thanks, Jennifer. I was going to say that I was really impressed when I met you this year at the Nuclear Energy Institute, how many women in the executive team. I was impressed with that to see so many good quality women there in, in the nuclear industry. Lenka, you want to talk a little bit about, oh, you're very entrepreneurial because not only academic, but entrepreneurial because you set up a company. So let us know a little bit about Helixes as well. Sounds good. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me today and happy to be joining you from Sydney. But as you can probably tell by my accent, I'm also another American on this panel, which is where I have spent most of my life before moving to Australia. But my family is actually originally from Slovakia. And the reason that I bring that up is because it leads into why I decided to pursue nuclear engineering when I went to university back in the US. And that's because I come from a town in Slovakia that has a big nuclear power plant right next to it. And being an inquisitive child and spending my summers there, I often ask my parents and my family members, what are those cooling towers? What's there? What do they do? And so I learned about nuclear energy from quite a young age and didn't have this scary perception of it that some people might have in terms of what they've seen in media. So when it came to studying engineering, I chose nuclear because I was really fascinated by the technology, not just in terms of providing clean energy, but also for its applications in agriculture and medicine and mining and space exploration in the future. So it's this very futuristic technology that has a lot of challenges and interesting problems to solve that that really fascinated me to go into it. And then it, early on in my career, I started at the US Department of Energy and a couple of the national laboratories in the US. And I had realized that a lot of the issues with building out the nuclear field in energy and these other various technical areas had to do with business policy and communication. So more of these non-technical soft sides and not necessarily always the engineering. So I realized that we could engineer 
the perfect machines, but if people didn't support them or the right policies weren't in place, they wouldn't really get to market and make that positive impact in the world. So I decided to get an MBA and focus my career on these more non-technical areas of the industry. And then before moving to Australia, I spent about five years working at New Scale Power back in the US and they are a small modular reactor developer. And there I was responsible for a strategy and external relations. And so a big part of that was trying to gain bipartisan support for advanced nuclear technologies, which I'm happy to say is very prevalent in the US now, and also engaging in clean energy and climate conversations to make sure that nuclear was included in those discussions. Then for personal reasons, I moved to Australia in 2020 and without a huge nuclear industry here, had to find my or create my own job. And so I started Helixos, which is a small consulting firm. And we've grown quite rapidly because a lot of people have interest in clean tech. And so we're 10 people now and essentially help startups and research organizations in commercializing new technologies. About half of our work is still in the nuclear industry, and we do most of that work in North America, but have also been doing some advisory here in Australia, especially giving technical and policy information to people that are interested in the potential of nuclear energy in the region. So that's a bit about me, and back to you, Chris. Thanks. I'm sure there's huge demand at the moment for exactly what you're doing. But we will move on to Jennifer and hear a bit more about your role in the Atlantic Council for those who don't are not acquainted with what they do. Sure. Thank you so much, Chris. And again, it's wonderful to be on this webinar and to see friends and to join everyone. So a little bit about my own background, I really come at nuclear energy from very much a national security background and also a background in trying to understand geopolitics. And I think for me personally, just like I think many of you, probably everyone speaking on this webinar and listening to this webinar, I care deeply about climate change. And so nuclear energy, of course, is really at that nexus between geopolitics, national security and climate change. And I think from the Atlantic Council's perspective, while the Atlantic Council itself does not take organizational policy positions, we were founded in 1961 to support the NATO alliance. And out of that has come a position where we we work to promote cooperation between partners and allies. And we also believe, of course, in the effects of climate change and in trying to reach a net zero world. And so Therefore, nuclear energy has really become a big part of what certainly what I do, and I'm very privileged to work on nuclear energy policy from my position at the Atlantic Council. Thank you, Jennifer. Why don't we start talking a little bit about SMRs for those who are attending and are not acquainted with these new generation nuclear, and what is the difference in terms of safety, size, cost, everything? What are the features that are so new and so advanced about them that make them a lot more attractive, especially for countries that don't have nuclear? Rita, you want to talk a little bit about the AP300 compared to the AP1000 and compared to traditional nuclear, and what are the advantages? Sure. So as I mentioned, we have a large gigawatt scale reactor, AP1000, that has been successfully licensed and constructed in China and in the United States. And it's been licensed by regulators in the United States, in the UK, and in China. And so we made a decision at Westinghouse, given the market for small modular reactor technology, that we would launch a reactor that was based on that license and constructed AP1000 technology. So the AP300 is based on that proven, fully passive technology. And what that means is really four things that, that I want to highlight at a high level. One is that it's fail-safe. It automatically achieves safe shutdown without the need for operator action. It is self-sufficient in that it's a passive approach to safety that eliminates the need for backup power and cooling supply. It's hazard-proof in that it's protected by a robust containment that's designed to withstand extreme external hazards. And finally, there's defense in depth, and that's really important in this industry. And it's really, I would say, designed into almost every facet of nuclear power technology. So there's multiple layers of defense in the very tiny probability for accident 
but the multiple layers of defense allow for accident mitigation. And so we're really excited about our AP 300, but I do want to emphasize for the audience, the SSMR merely stands for small, and really the generally accepted definition is 300 megawatts or smaller. And why companies, communities, even, for example, universities and hospitals, data centers are looking at small modular reactor technology are for some of the reasons you've already mentioned that the cost will be less because the size is smaller. The footprint will also be smaller. Our The footprint for our AP300 safety-related plant is one-fourth of a soccer pitch or a soccer field. And so it is quite small and compact, and that's designed intentionally because a lot of the markets that we want to deploy in don't have a lot of land. So we're very conscientious about land usage. And so there's cost. And then there's also an aspect of some communities that are new to nuclear. And so they may not want to embark on launching a large gigawatt scale reactor immediately. So there's some tailoring to that type of community or, or even city, state, country as well. And so let me pause there. I know that others have a viewpoint on the SMRs as well. I do want to emphasize, though, that cost that is associated with reactor builds, be it a small micro-reactor, an SMR, or a gigawatt-scale reactor, more than half of that is in the construction of the reactor. So if you have a smaller reactor to construct, it will, one would theoretically think it would be naturally less expensive, but it depends on where you construct it. If that labor force has constructed reactors before, and the cost of that labor, depending on where they are around the world. So we have the technology cost, but also the labor and construction piece. That's also a very large part of new builds. You sound like you wanted to say something about the SMRs. Oh, sure. I'll just add on to what Rita has already explained really well in terms of the differences with SMRs and also dialing in on the S in terms of small, what the strong safety case for SMRs also means is that you can have a minimal or reduced emergency planning zone. And this means that in today's reactors, those that are sited in the U.S., for example, have a 10-mile radius of an emergency planning zone around those power plants, which means you need to have emergency planning and potential evacuation. And because of the strong safety case of SMRs, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the U.S., for example, has approved a much smaller emergency planning zone that's limited to the site boundary of, of the SMR plant. So that means you can have, you can site these SMRs much closer to where energy is needed, whether that be a city or community or an industrial zone, for example. And this means that also a lot of coal plants are very close to these industrial areas. So an SMR plant could be placed directly on that site because of this minimal emergency planning zone. And then dialing a bit on the M, which sometimes stands for medium, sometimes modular. And you also call SMRs or you'll hear SMRs called advanced reactors, or then there's micro reactors, which are even smaller, less than 10 megawatts, for example or even down to a megawatt or kilowatt size. So there's many different names and many different designs out there, but I'll use SMR as generically for these new types of designs. But many of them are also designed to be modular. So that means you could have multiple reactors in series at a site and meaning that you could use some of them for electricity generation and the other reactors for generating steam, for example, which could be used directly in an industrial process that needs high energy heat or even for producing hydrogen through high temperature steam electrolysis. So these reactors are designed to be go beyond that baseload electric power that we traditionally think of as uh, using large nuclear power plants for. So there's lots of purposes then and applications for SMRs, but just going back a little, because what I hear in Australia many times talking about SMRs from people is that SMRs don't exist yet. It's not proven. But from what you said, Rita, at least with Westinghouse, it's actually a proven technology. All you're doing is making it into a smaller reactor, something that is already in operation in terms of safety aspects and the whole new technology. Is that correct? So 
it's actually wrong to say they don't exist. One might also say that they do exist. They're operating in our naval fleet, not only in the US, but in many countries, aircraft carriers and submarines. And so those were the original SMRs. And it's, they have operated safely for hundreds of thousands of miles and for decades. So they do exist. And Jennifer from NEI and also Jennifer Gordon. So what about the licensing, the permitting? Because when we were in the US, it felt like the difficulty and the length of time was really involved with approving SMRs because of the new technology. So what are the hurdles and how is this being reduced and all the bottlenecks and red tape around it? Yes, first I would say we, we want a strong and independent regulator in all countries that has nuclear power. Absolutely. And I would also say, and Dr. Barenwell hinted at it, was, is that these designs aren't starting from scratch. For example, the AP-1000 is a walkaway safe plant, it's a passively safe plant. AP-300 is a scaled down version relying on the same passive safety features. Another U.S. vendor is Jihitachi. They have a certified design that is larger, and they're looking at the X300 design, and it is also using those same approved technologies, and it's it's been simplified and smaller. So these designs, these concepts have been proven to be successful, not only in the designs that have been approved and in the plants that have been operating, but also, I would also say through the testing programs that had go along, had gone along with the licensing. So I don't want to give the impression that these are completely new designs. They're proven technology, but we do need the regulator to be efficient and we want the regulator to be efficient. And in order to do that, they need to recognize these enhanced safety features of these plants, these passive safety features. They also need to recognize that once a plant design is certified, and if it's the same plant design that's going to be cited in different areas with only minimal changes, that once it's approved at one site, the approval in the next sites, because we're looking to build about 300 of these in the United States, the approval on the other sites need to be really efficient because again, there's no point re-reviewing what's already been approved and demonstrated to be efficient and effective. So it's fair to say that for the first new design, it takes longer. If it's the same design again and again, being ordered by different customers, then of course it will be way shorter. But also that the designs that I mentioned, Jihitachis and Westinghouse's small modular reactors, we also have other vendors in the U.S. that are looking to certify small modular reactors. Those passive safety features have already been approved by the NRC just in different designs. And so we received a question beforehand. Somebody's asking, so what would be the lead time until from the time it's ordered until installation, for example? Maybe, which I don't know if you have an answer to that. Sure. Our timeline looks like today we're sitting in, it's 2023. So we are anticipating, and we have already been engaged with the regulator in the United States and are, have submitted our, what's called the regulatory engagement plan. And we anticipate, and again, as Jennifer said, the regulator is very independent. And so we can't control the timeline, but we anticipate because we've worked with this regulator for many years or decades, we anticipate design certification by 2027 followed by three years for site-specific design and licensing. And then finally, for nth of a kind, three years for construction. So that's about 10 years from now. Now, that doesn't seem very short, but it's very realistic. And what about, Let's talk about cost as well, because the two things that come up a lot is, one is time. It takes too long. Perhaps for Australia, it might be too late. The second thing is cost that people get quite worried about. So how does the economics of nuclear 
power is looking like. I don't know, Jennifer, from would you, is there something you can comment on from the Atlantic Council point of view? I know that you're big on the national security side, but obviously these things have to be affordable as well. Sure. And I'll say, again, this is just from my perspective, but I think a common way that we use to evaluate the cost of different energy sources is the levelized cost of energy, LCOE. And I think that can be useful. I also think it leaves a lot to be desired in a number of ways. It doesn't really take into account the cost of transmission. It doesn't take into account things like energy density, land use, again, valuing nuclear energy as a national security asset, also the high capacity factor of nuclear energy. I think you have to, when you compare nuclear energy versus the cost of all of these other energy sources, additionally, Every energy source, I believe, has received some level of support, at least in the United States, from our government. How do you factor in what is maybe a production tax credit, an investment tax credit versus a baked in support from the U.S. government? And then how do you compare all of those things, again, taking into account the negatives, for example, fossil fuel use, the carbon output, and then also taking into account the positives? I think it's very difficult, but I would say, first of all, again, my perspective, not necessarily Atlanta Council, I think a carbon tax would be great. I don't know politically if it's ever going to happen or if it's ever going to happen quite in the way in which I might envision it. And I also think, too, again, from the national security argument, to say this is something, nuclear energy is a technology that builds 100-year-long relationships between the vendor and the buyer. And so would you rather have that relationship set up between the United States and one of our allies with the, with the buyer country, or is it better to have Russia or China as the global supplier? And I would argue that it's better for the United States and our allies to be the global suppliers of this technology that I think is absolutely so crucial. We're touching upon national security, energy security is national security is what we heard from the Nuclear Energy Institute when we were there and from you, Jennifer, as well. And it's an important issue. How do you put a price or a cost on something that is national security? And so obviously nuclear has emerged as a great asset for national security, counterbalancing this, the energy strategies of other influential countries like China, Russia, and for us, Australia, we don't want to see the whole Pacific and the Asia Pacific buy nuclear from these other countries or partnering with them. It might as well partner with the democracies like the US and the UK and so on. But this energy independence that it provides, so there's a few facets there. What are the areas that actually support the national security argument? I don't know if Jennifer or Lenka, you want to talk about that a little bit. I can you know, go ahead and oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. I wasn't sure yeah. what Jennifer, Chris, you were talking about. So go ahead, Lenka. How does the U.S. Sure, I, that actually? Sorry, what was that? How does the U.S. perceive that? Because when we were in the U.S. visiting all the different vendors and the different institutes, they were very interested in having Australia as an ally in this whole supply chain, the nuclear supply chain. So how does the U.S. perceive that as national security argument? I can start with that and then pass it to either of the Jennifers to elaborate on that a little bit more. I, it's just what, I, what Jennifer Gordon said before in terms of the U.S. having really looking at its allies and wanting to engage with them to provide that energy security, which then, of course, leads to national security. And I think a really good example there is the trends that you can see happening with energy in Central and Eastern Europe. Many of those countries in the recent years have realized that nuclear energy can provide really good energy security for them, especially having or being able to come off of gas that is being imported from Russia. So the recent war has exasperated that problem even more. And you'll see the U.S. engaging in countries like Romania and Poland and even my home country of Slovakia recently has engaged more with the U.S. government on deploying new nuclear technologies in their countries because they want to have reliable energy and then also have more independence in where that fuel is coming from, rather its allies than not. I'll let the others elaborate. So in the I would just, 
Yeah, Go it's ahead. okay to jump in, jump back in. I think something interesting, and I'd be interested to know, Lenka, if you and the other colleagues on this call agree, something interesting to me about Central and Eastern Europe is that there was tremendous expertise there on nuclear energy, tremendous comfort with nuclear energy. And much of that comes from the fact that these were former Soviet, Soviet socialist republics or even former Warsaw Pact countries. And so they had formerly had had supply from Russia of their nuclear energy technologies. Now, the these kind of Soviet legacy or Soviet era reactors are reaching the end of their lifespans. And so these countries, I think pretty much all of them are saying we no longer want Russian supply. Russia is no longer or cannot be considered to be a reliable actor and a reliable vendor. And so we are looking towards the United States and U.S. allies. And so we're seeing this shift. But I think it's really interesting that we're about 30 years now past the fall of the USR. And so we're seeing this massive trend as these reactors reach the end of their lifespans. And if I can add to just very simply, if a country is depending on another country for its powering its grid, you need power for a whole lot of things. You need power for, of course, manufacturing, for food production and processing and distribution. You need power for health reasons in terms of powering hospitals and getting medication to your people in your country that the if you if another country has all that control and can certain or, and can turn that off by saying we're not going to be giving you the parts that are needed to get the plant back up and running then they have a whole lot of control and you don't have a lot of negotiating power with them so i would say that just very simply that's probably not only the 100 year relationship that we talk about but it's just having that ability to impact the day-to-day -day society in that country so directly is problematic and that's why going to an ally for support for nuclear power where you get the fuel on site and then you're operating for 2 years or one and a half years to 2 years that gives you a lot of stability. I was disconnected for a minute. I think I've had problems with my internet. I hope it didn't disturb the whole thing. So I missed on the conversation the last minute, but does that mean now, Rita, that there's more demand? As I hear, there's a lot of countries wanting to secure their own energy supply, especially base load. And that comes a conversation also in Australia, we're trying to replace coal because coal is retiring. And there's a lot of renewables that we'd like to get into the grid. The projects are rolling out. How does how does actually nuclear help with base load, securing energy? Other countries are looking into it. Is there more demand than in terms of orders? Are the books filling in, Rita? And, and then is it also because some countries are in that process of getting to their net zeros? It's national security there after securing base load, but it's also reaching their targets of net zero and clean energy. And there's nothing better than nuclear in terms of clean energy supply. Okay, I'm hoping you can hear me. There's a lot of background noise where I am, yeah. but I would love to tell you that our order books are filling up. That is not the case just yet, but let's connect, reconnect later this year. I might have better news for you, but the amount of interest that we have seen from existing utilities around the world, as well as newcomers to nuclear is so exciting. It is very favorable and there's a huge market out there i think there are dozens of developers that are working on small modular reactor designs in reality i would say a handful of them will get across the finish line so to speak and deploy technologies but that said there is plenty of opportunity for all of us as reactor vendors as reactor developers if i can touch on there's a question in here from another jennifer and they're asking about the AP300, will it be able to ramp up and down or is it envisioned to operate steadily? We are, we would certainly, it can be uh, designed to load follow, but it is most efficient 
to operate steadily 24 seven and then couple if there is excess electricity generated based on the demand in that community, couple it with we have a long duration energy storage product where you can store that excess heat and then use it for subsequent electricity generation when it's needed. So that's the preference, but we can design it to load fall. Or another option could simply be that not powering the grid, but then generating hydrogen, um, some other use other than powering the grid, which of course, numerous designs are looking at. So is there more? Including the AP300. Oh, that's, and there's also a question here, just stay on, on the, the West, who owns Westinghouse SMRs, Rita? There's a question here from Bernie wanting to know who, who owns the Westinghouse SMR, is it Toshiba? I, that is, I do not think it's Toshiba. I, we are currently owned and the contract is being finalized, but we have been purchased by Brookfield Renewable and Cameco. And so that would be the owners, so to speak, but it's a Westinghouse design. It's not yeah. a Cameco design. It's not a Brookfield Renewable design. It's a Westinghouse design and the nameplate will be Westinghouse. And there's also a question for you on the status of the AP300 or the BioNTario Power Generation OPG. I am not aware that OPG has ordered an AP300. They have, as far as I know, they have an arrangement with GE for GE's BWRX300. And this is information that may be outdated, but the last that I heard, and this is not Westinghouse's position, this is my personal kind of opinion or information that I have, is that they were going to deploy by 2029. And meaning operational, sorry, they were going to be connected to the grid and operational by 2029. That's only mm. six years away. You know, let's That's see. Right. Yeah. And so we were talking about the synergies between nuclear power and renewables, including hydrogen there, Jennifer, also. And Linka, maybe you can talk about repowering, retiring coal plants. I've heard at least of one and I was participating in another event the other week and there were there's a couple of countries already doing that. Australia has a lot of coal plants. So how about how does it work? Does it make it cheaper? And can we actually utilize the workers or the workforce? How does it work? Yes, that's a great question and something that I was able to investigate back when I was at New Scale a few years ago. We had been saying that we could repower retiring coal sites in the U.S., but hadn't done the actual investigations into it. And so I led the study to do that. And what we did was work with utilities that own both coal and nuclear plants in the U.S., of which there are many and one of the surprising things that we found was that you could actually retrain most of the workers, if not all of them, at a coal nuclear power, at a coal power plant to work at a nuclear power plant. And people have this notion that you might need a PhD or very high degree or high degree of training to work at a nuclear power plant. But the reality is that some of that trades training is important, but then all the nuclear training you actually get at the plant once you start there, including to become a licensed reactor operator. So the jobs are very transferable in terms of coal plant workers already having very good training in the trades and being able to work, especially on that secondary side of the plant, which just has steam generation and turbines and electric generators. So all of that secondary side is very similar between coal and SMR plants. So you have the benefit of retraining those workers. And then that of course can uh, have cost savings because you already have a workforce there and really good economic benefits for that community to have another energy generating asset instead of a re retiring coal plant that's not replaced by anything or replaced by renewables or gas in a different location. And finally, of course, you're saving on the transmission lines because they've already been built to that coal site. So it really does make a lot of sense to do especially in countries that have a lot of retiring coal assets or ones that are going offline due to climate goals. And a good example in the US is that there is a TerraPower GE design that is being funded, partially funded by the US government to deploy first of a kind technology that's called Natrium and it's actually being built on a coal plant site in Wyoming. So that'll be one of the first examples of doing this. And we mentioned Eastern Europe before, Poland is another great example of country that's looking to 
repower their coal power plants with SMRs or other nuclear assets. And if I can add just quickly, just to give you an idea, because these coal communities are just really interested in getting the nuclear plant to be sited there on the coal site, because typically power plants are located in less densely populated areas. And when the plant is to shut down, it devastates the community, as Lenk indicated. And in fact, when TerraPower, partnering with Pacific Corp, looked to build a the natrium design, the TerraPower design in Wyoming, there were four different coal air sites that were vying for, really begging for the plant to be located at their sites. And so it worked out for the Kemmerer Wyoming site. But this, this idea of reaching out to the coal sites and saying, hey, look, do you want nuclear? All of them are saying yes. It's this extraordinary uniting of people realizing the importance that having a stable grid provides to the economy of a nation, but also to achieving the carbon reduction goals going to nuclear. Yeah, and I was going to mention a little bit that we also have the coal fires, the coal retiring in Australia and Australia, Canada and other countries, we have a very strong mining sector. And what is the possibility of SMRs actually decarbonize, helping decarbonize the hard to abate sector of industry here? Is that already happening in other places, Rita or Jennifer, that countries yes. are looking at that? Yes. So, for example, in northern Canada and in Alaska, mining operations, they are relying on diesel generators and getting that fuel shipped up to the remotely located sites. And that is very expensive. And diesel fuel is a large carbon emitter. Seeking to perhaps site even a micro reactor, depending on how much energy is needed, or a series of micros, or perhaps if the site is large enough, a smaller, small modular reactor on the, the less generation side, maybe not 300 megawatts. But that is being looked at. And in fact, in the United States, it's really a lack. Alaska and senators of, in Alaska that are looking at that and governor as well. But in, then in Canada, it's in those northern provinces. There's a few questions from the audience, but before I go there, we haven't talked about spent fuel. And that's something that a lot of people think about is waste. So Rita, how does waste is managed in the, U, in the U.S. just briefly so people have an idea of how it works? So at the moment, we don't have a permanent repository for used fuel. And so the utilities in the United States have for several decades stored their used fuel at the utility site in what's called dry cask storage. And those dry casks are designed to exceed the life of those nuclear power plants. So they're safely, the used fuel is safely stored at site for the moment. Now, in different areas around the world, and I think Jennifer Gordon can speak more to this, but there are countries that recycle their fuel because the nuclear fuel that we use in commercial power plants today is used only five is used, uses up only five percent of its utility, and so there's still really ninety five percent of usefulness left in that fuel. And so other countries around the world, nominally France, they recycle nuclear fuel so that it can be used again. So there are designs that are being developed in SMR technology where as they these concepts are just deployed around the world, they will use fuel. And what we at Westinghouse actually have our lead fast reactor concept that is being developed to what's called close the fuel cycle. So you can either run it on fuel that has been once used or run it on new fuel and then continue to use previously used fuel, if you will. Jennifer, you want to say? I'd like, yeah. Lenka, yeah. I can quickly add to that in saying that even currently operating reactors in countries like France and some other parts of Europe are already using recycled fuel. And fun fact that from the Opal research reactor that's operating here in Australia, we actually send our the Australian 
used fuel to France to be reprocessed and then that vitrified waste is sent back to Australia. And so that reduces the long-term radioactivity quite significantly from recycling that used fuel. Sure. And I'll just add in the United States, we have companies, my understanding is companies like Oaklo, companies like ARC Canada that are looking to have to site recycling facilities and make this part of their fuel process. And actually, Rita, I thought you were going to mention because you're in Japan right now, but a few months ago when Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was in Japan and she made huge waves in the nuclear community, at least on Twitter, by tweeting about Japan, and I think maybe on Instagram, by talking about Japan's recycling capabilities. And I think that this is also being looked at as a way, not necessarily to solve all spent fuel issues or all, I guess we don't say waste, but it's a way of dealing with some of it. And also, I think making the process a little bit and fuel acquisition, I think, more cost competitive for some of these companies that are facing, I think, pretty steep costs of getting the specific type of fuel that would work in their new reactors. And if I can just add and agree with what has been previously said, but if we take a step back and we say, okay, recycling isn't going to be deployed in the United States, that isn't what I propose, but let's just say that could be true. If we took all of the used fuel that has powered up to 104 reactors over 40 years in the United States, where obviously we had to shut some plants down, but in now we're at 92, almost 93, when Volvo 3 starts or connects to the grid and goes into commercial operations, I should say. If you were to take all of that used fuel it would fit on a football field up to the height of 10, 10 yards high. That's wow. it. No other power generation source knows where its fuel is, protects it, stores it very securely and safely. And I could have a dry cask in my office here in my house and I have climbed up on top of them as when I was at the regulator, and there's no radiation that is coming off of those. It's passively cooled with just air circulation. They're reinforced concrete, very durable, designed for extremely large seismic events and even tornadoes, et cetera, all natural hazards that you can think of. So spent fuel is safely stored as is today, certainly as we look to the expansion of the nuclear industry, we wanna take a look at reprocessing both for fast reactors and also for perhaps the light water reactors that, that are operating today and then also the small modular reactors. So just wanna end on that. There is not a safety or security issue with use fuel in the United States or in any of our allied countries. That makes a lot of sense economically, but also environmentally recycling. And it looks like there's a, it's already happening. It's not impossible to recycle spent fuel from nuclear. I have a question here from our chair. He's saying Australia does not have a nuclear industry. Can you give examples of the most recent countries that are converting to nuclear, that don't have nuclear, but want to start having a nuclear industry? Do you know of any, either Rita or Jennifer? Yeah. I'll start. So Poland is a really good example. They plan to deploy large gigawatt scaled nuclear power plants, but they are already looking to the future and are very seriously considering small modular reactors. This relationship with Poland and in my case in the, with the United States has been developing for many years, government to government relationships and guidance and advice from both the technical side as well as the regulatory side and security, for example, from Department of State in the United States has been a years long, several years long relationship. And so I think it's a really good example of how a country that is new to nuclear can deploy new nuclear technology and not just pick one size, but start to consider a por portfolio of different classes and sizes in their clean energy portfolio. It's a very good example. So for a country that doesn't have a nuclear industry, what would be the steps for deploying SMRs? Where do they start? 
what what is what is the process the first thing that we would recommend is coordination with the International Atomic Energy Agency. It has a program that is funded by all the different countries that have nuclear power programs, and it goes through a series of steps in building the infrastructure. That means you need to have a regulator that is knowledgeable. You need to have the workforce that is knowledgeable. You have to think about what size plant would fit with your grid because if you have a smaller grid and then you think you're going to build a very large plant like a 1000 megawatt reactor that may could make the grid unstable if you were to come offline so there's a lot of factors that go into this and the IAEA program for emergent nations are supported by um, or countries like the United States working with the U.S. regulator, working with the U.S. industry to help get that country the infrastructure and technology it needs to be able to deploy nuclear reliably and safely. I can add to this in the context of Australia in saying that Having a regulator, of course, is really important, and Australia already does have one because of the research reactor that we have here. And it's a 20 megawatt thermal reactor and that has a full-scale operational and maintenance team. And so it's not that far of a stretch to go from those operations to operating SMRs. It would be more of a matter of scale and, of course, scaling up that workforce. And I've actually been working with UNSW, the University of New South Wales here in Sydney, in helping them expand their nuclear engineering program and teaching courses in that. And we've seen the interest in that program rise significantly in just the last couple of years with more and more students coming in and then me mentoring them to find jobs either here in Australia or abroad until there is a potential nuclear energy industry here. So that interested workforce is definitely out there and can be activated. Jennifer. Sure. I would just very quickly add the United Arab Emirates as I think an obvious example of a country that 15 years ago had no nuclear energy program and now this year is about to connect its fourth reactor to the grid and I believe it will be generating or accounting for 25% of electricity in the UAE. So I think a really outstanding achievement over the last several years and I think also to connect Lenka's point about the regulator and the research reactor to Rita's point about Poland, Poland also has a research reactor and a regulator. And when we look at nuclear readiness in any given country, I think in a lot of ways, it's not either you have nothing or you have a fully fledged nuclear program. I think there are a number of different steps along the way. And so countries are in any varying degree of readiness for nuclear energy. We're running out of time, but I think I would like to just touch on one point. And I suppose that's because I'm sitting here in Australia and we still have a prohibition on nuclear. So do you have any words of advice or how did in the US, for example, it became such a bipartisan issue, the Inflation Reduction Act is actually putting lots of dollars towards improving nuclear, pushing for SMRs. How did that happen? Where did they see the necessity? When was the turning point? And how could we adapt that to maybe the Australian sort of landscape? What would be your suggestions for Australia? Since we've got a lot of uranium and we signed up with AUKUS and we are retiring our coal plants, it would be great to, to have nuclear, at least as a, one of the options there on the table for us. Who wants to go first, Jennifer? Yeah, I'll jump in first. There are a lot of great attributes about nuclear, and we've covered a number of them. First, it plays a key role in electric grid stability, especially when you're trying to bring in renewables because renewables are intermittent and the battery technology isn't there. So it's going to provide grid stability, but it's flexible so that Again, it can take offline if there's a lot of energy going onto the grid from renewables. It's really sunny that day or the wind is really blowing. Okay, then the nuclear plant can then take its energy and either store it or it can also generate hydrogen, et cetera. There are various different, different options there. It's also great for energy security because you have fuel on site for a year and a half to two years. 
It's also great with a society that is all about innovation and wanting to modernize. And so we've used these different attributes. And as a result, we've keyed into the policymakers, whatever they may be interested in. They may be more about wanting energy security. Nuclear plays a role. Could be more about carbon reduction. Nuclear plays a role. It could be about modernizing and getting a young generation into technology. Nuclear plays a role. So I think that's how we have built that support over, over the years. And there aren't a lot of issues that have bipartisan support in the U.S. and nuclear is definitely one of them for different reasons. Democrats like the carbon reduction, Republicans like the energy security and the foreign policy benefit. I think you tap in that way and then you have a whole lot of people through a grassroots effort reaching out to their representatives. That's a great summary. Rita, do you want to give us some advice on how you see bipartisanship or the attraction of nuclear for Australia? I think, and this ties to one of the questions that we didn't get a chance to answer, but I think the keen interest in new, new nuclear around the world is really driven by efforts to achieve decarbonization targets. Several really renowned studies have shown that renewables can get us 80% of the way there, but that remaining 20%, you need some firm base load power, and nuclear is ready to fill that 20%. And there's a question, why, we've been talking about SMRs for 50 years, why now? And that's why now. The market is there being driven by the environmental push to decarbonize. States in the United States, provinces in Canada, countries all around the world, and I hope Australia is one of them, is being driven to consider nuclear because of its clean energy benefits. And the technology has been proven to operate safely for decades. And I hope that continues. And again, all of us, we started out saying how, what an exciting time this is. It is absolutely the highlight of my career at this moment where there is so much demand for clean power and nuclear can absolutely help supplement that need. Fantastic. Thanks, Rita. Linka. You're more acquainted with the situation in Australia at the moment. Yes, and the situation is that renewables have grown greatly in Australia. We have one of the highest penetrations of rooftop solar, for example, great sun all year round. But the reality is that 90 over 90% of our primary energy usage is still coming from fossil fuels. That includes transportation, industry, electricity, everything. And so we have a very long way to go to decarbonize all of that. And the way we were able to build bipartisan support in the U.S. was through all of that engagement, engagement education with environmental groups, with those talking about clean energy and really having a technology neutral approach available for all of those different options. And the Inflation Reduction Act is an excellent example of that, of taking that technology neutral approach and looking at the outcomes, because the outcomes that we really want our decarbonization and reliable electricity and energy as well. And going back to the cost question, because I think that's the one that primarily comes up when I engage here in Australia, is that it is important to look at entire system and what it's going to cost when we do decarbonize it. And one of the reports I'd like to point to is a recent Department of Energy report on accelerating advanced nuclear. And they looked at the different costs between different clean firm power sources. And we don't, we have limited sources for this. We can do nuclear, we can do natural gas with carbon capture, for example, or renewables with storage. And those system costs for those different clean firm power sources all have the same range in terms of that levelized cost of electricity. So it's really about diversity in the energy grid and having all of the options available to be able to tackle this large decarbonization challenge. I think you've nailed it, Lenka. And Jennifer, from your perspective. Sure, I would only add two quick points to everything that everyone else has said, which I agree with entirely. But I think when we talk about reaching or renewables reaching that 80% of the grid, first of all, that's just the power sector. So we have to talk about also how we power our industrial processes. 
But secondly, that's the power sector right now. And we have not yet, I think, reached the full electrification goals that many of our governments are looking at. So electrifying everyone's homes and electrifying data centers and transportation fleets and every and all of that. So that is going to place an incredible burden on the power sector. And I think we're going to find, and hopefully we'll have done something about it now, but we're going to find that we're going to need nuclear, I think, more than ever. I wish our prime minister was watching today. Unfortunately, he didn't tune in. But maybe you can all come to Australia and present a case. I think we've reached, we're actually five minutes over, but the conversation was just absolutely insightful. And I've learned a lot. I thought I knew about nuclear since my trip to the US, but I keep learning more and more about it. And I think you've been fantastic with your points of sharing your experience with us and all the knowledge that you have. I'd like to thank you all on behalf of Coalition for Conservation, on behalf of our board and our team. And also I wanna thank the audience for participating, for the great questions that they've asked. For those who haven't really signed up to Coalition for Conservation, go to the website to get our newsletter and all the invitations to our events. Thank you so much and have a lovely thank you. day.